Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, are Christians conservatives? Now, sometimes we may be tempted to conflate or to confuse, to mix up Christianity and conservatism. And it's easy for believers to fall into a rut where we live afraid of the future, ill at ease in the present, and longing for the past. If only things would stop changing. If only we could go back to the 1950s, to the good old days. And there is a danger that we resist every change in the church and in society, and that we're constantly looking back. But that's not Christianity. That's what Lot's wife did. She looked back. Now, God's people certainly do look to the past, but not only to the past, We look back, but we also look up, and we also look forward. You see, faith looks back and builds on the promises of God as he has revealed them in history, as he has spoken them, as he has pictured their fulfillment in his mighty acts of salvation and redemption in the past. And in the present, because of that, faith looks up. And it clings to his promises and perseveres even in the most troubling circumstances. We trust because we know that God is faithful. We have a quiet peace and certainty amongst all the chaos. Because even though the mountains be removed from their place and cast into the depth of the sea, God is faithful. God is our refuge. It's because we look back and we see God's faithfulness that we can look up and we can be certain that he is still the same and that even today he will hear our cries and work all things together for his glory and for our salvation. And so faith does look back and up, but, but the primary direction of faith is forward. Faith expects great things. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith looks forward in a certain expectation of a glorious prospect, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, which are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith longs for his appearing. And because of that, Faith not only expects, but faith desires change. In our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships, in the church, and in the world. Faith understands that the movement of the kingdom is forward to the future. Changing, developing, moving. As it did in that vision that Daniel had of that stone that was cut without human hands and and came to roll and become bigger and bigger and bigger. It smashed all of the idol 
which represent the kingdoms of this world, and it grew till it filled the whole earth. That's what faith looks for. That's what faith expects. We don't want the world to stay the same. We expect progressive growth and the advance of God's kingdom. And because faith looks forward, believers know that every generation, every marriage, every birth, every up and every down in the economy and in world politics, every struggle, every affliction, every joy, every blessing is bringing us forward, is bringing us closer to that great day of our Lord Jesus Christ when he will make all things new. And we long for it. And we prepare for it. And we live for it. And we make our decisions and we do our work and we live our lives with a view to the future, to the coming of our Lord. That's what we do In the New Testament dispensation, that's what the believers did in the Old Testament. Think of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. Speaking about the Old Testament saints, speaking about Abraham, that he was looking forward, looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is is God. If you have your Bible handy, look at Hebrews 11, 13 to 16 for a moment. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. The Old Testament saints looked forward. They didn't see it. They were expecting it, and they died waiting for it. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, if they had been looking at the past, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's the kind of faith that Abraham, the father of believers, lived. He and the other Old Testament saints, they understood that their lives had no meaning and significance in themselves, but that they had their meaning and significance in how God was using them to bring this world to come to know the glorious salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that faith, Abraham buried Sarah in the last chapter. He buried her in the hope of the resurrection. He knows that God will fulfill his promises, the promise of a land and a people. He doesn't have it now, but he knows it's coming in the future. And because faith looks forward, Abraham plans for the future. You see that in the first nine verses of our chapter. He plans in the expectation of the fulfillment of the promises of God. Now, he's not passive. He doesn't say, well, God's going to do things. I'm just going to sit around and wait. He's He knows that God fulfills his promises using our faithful obedience and our faithful service in the office and callings to which which he, he calls us to. And so he has a job, he has an office, he has a calling, he's a father, and he's responsible as the head of the church, of the covenant people on earth. He's responsible 
to provide for the continuation of the holy line of the Messiah. He needs to find a wife for Isaac. Because the line of the Messiah must continue. And Isaac can't marry someone from Canaan because in the future, the people of this area will, are slated for destruction as idolaters, as people that love sin and hate God. So Isaac can't marry one of them. Just like today, so in the Old Testament, there has to be a distinction between those who are consecrated to God and those who consecrate themselves to sin. There cannot be an unequal yoking. Now, sometimes we misuse that, do not be unequally yoked, and we say, well, you shouldn't marry someone from another denomination. That's not at all what the apostle means. He means that believers should not marry unbelievers. And sometimes that means you shouldn't marry someone from your own church. Because there can be unbelievers and hypocrites even within the church. So Isaac needs to be married to someone in, in the Lord. This is something to think about as we see Abraham providing for his son. What is the purpose that we teach our children? What is the purpose for their marriage? Do we teach them to look for their happiness in the first place? Or to seek God's glory and the building up of the church and the people of God. And so Abraham gives instructions to his servant to go back to the area of Haran, to his family, his clan, to find a wife for Isaac. The servant's very practical, verse 5. If you have your Bible open, it'll be easier to follow the sermon as I go through the chapter. In verse 5, he brings up the very reasonable objection, well, what if she doesn't want to come? And look at Abraham's answer. As Abraham answers in verse 6 and following, he says, look, God called me here. God has promised me a people and a land. God is in charge. And look at verse 7. God will do this. God is faithful. God will make it work. God will send his angel. Now, it doesn't say God will send an angel. God will send his angel. And it's possible, though not certain, that this is a reference again to the angel of the Lord, who in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is the, often the son of God before he became incarnate. It's our Lord Jesus Christ before he was born as a baby in the first century or around beginning of the, the, eight, the years A.D. So what we have here is we have the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, leading, literally leading and directing events to help his ancestors meet one another and marry the right people so that in, eventually in history he can be born. And so what Abraham is doing here is a lot more than saying, well, my son needs a wife, let's go find a wife. There's something a lot bigger going on here. The future of the human race for all eternity depends on this mission. God has promised a holy land and a holy people from whom a holy Messiah will be born. And this is a cosmic project which makes a massive difference for eternity, for the entire universe. That's why Abraham 
refers to God as he does in verse 7. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven. He is, he is directing things here for the future of the world. And because it's so important, Abraham asks his servant to swear an oath in a very strange way. This is a rare symbolic act here to put the hand under the thigh while making this oath. It's not something we see in other cultures, in other nations around that time. It's just something we see here, and then later on, Jacob does the same thing with his sons. We only see it in God's covenant people. Now, why? Why does he ask the servant to put the hand under the thigh to make the oath? Well, in other texts in Scripture, we, we read that children came from the thigh. It's a, it's a saying. It's, a, it's a, a reference to the place in the body from where new life comes. So it has to do with generations. It has to do with new life. And it is close to the place in the body where the mark of circumcision is carried. And the mark of circumcision, of course, is the mark of the covenant. Now, you have to remember, this is the beginning of the church in the Old Testament. They don't have a Bible. There's no Bible. They don't have a tabernacle or a temple. So what do they have to symbolize the word and the faithfulness of God? When we go to court... And we swear to tell the truth, we make an oath, we can put our hands on a Bible. I believe it's still possible to do that in our culture for the time being. Because the Bible represents the word of God, the faithfulness of God, the truth of God. Back then, the mark of circumcision was the physical sign of the faithfulness and the truth and the word of God. And that's why Abraham asks his servant, to place his hand near that area on his body to make this oath. It's an oath based on God's covenant faithfulness. And so the oath is sworn, and there in verses 10 and following, the servant goes off on the journey. He's going to travel to the city of Nahor, and, and that's Haran. That's where Nahor was living. The city of Nahor is Haran. It's about a thousand kilometers north of Beersheba. And if you, you remember, of course, in the news, we hear about Ukraine and the Crimean Peninsula. If you look at the map, you see Ukraine, and underneath you see the Black Sea. Go down across the Black Sea and then go a few hours drive south of the southern uh, coast of the Black Sea, and you'll get to Haran. Coming up from Israel, you go through Syria and it's just north of the Syrian border in the south of Turkey. And there is still a city there today. It's an ancient city. And so it is about a thousand kilometer journey, which is about the distance roughly from here, St. Albert, to maybe Brandon, Manitoba. If you travel towards Winnipeg, when you're about two, two and a half hours shy of Winnipeg, you've done the amount of traveling that the servant had to do to get to Haran. By car, it takes, it would take you know, 11, 12, 13 hours maybe. By camel, it takes 
two, three, four weeks. Now, in this chapter, the servant is not named, but it's most likely Eliezer of Damascus, the heir of Abram's wealth until Isaac was born. He's the oldest, and he's the most trusted servant. But his name isn't mentioned because all the focus in this chapter is on God. He's doing everything. And so human beings kind of take the background. And we see as we read through the chapter that Eliezer, as the most important servant in the household, remember that Abraham has a community perhaps of two or 3,000 people. It's a massive operation with a lot of wealth, a lot of animals and herds and all kinds of other things. This is a trustworthy man. But also as we read through the chapter, we see that he is a believing man. He is circumcised. We know that because they all were, and he is part of the church, even though he's not Israelite. He's from Syria. He's from Damascus. And so we see how he does his work. He, he's faithful to his master. And look, the, the first thing he does when he gets to verse 12, he prays. He prays. And he calls on God to show steadfast love. You see that in verse 12 there, steadfast love? That word in Hebrew is chesed. Chesed is also translated uh, in, in, in covenant faithfulness. It's, a, it's, a, it's the kind of faithful love that you have pictured in a marriage. It's a committed love. And it is the most beautiful word that God uses to describe throughout the Old Testament, the fact that his love is unconditional and unbreakable, and that he is faithful to his promises, that he loves us to the death, literally. And so the servant invokes this faithful, committed love of God to his people. He says, Lord, be faithful as you've told us you are. And then he kind of maps out for God how things have to work here. He says, Lord, this is how it's going to work. If, if, she, if she gives me water and offers to water my camels, then let her be the one, look at verse 14 there, let her be the one whom you have appointed, whom you have ordained, whom you have decided. And again, see what's happening here. He looks to God. He prays to God. He depends on God's faithfulness. He's not going in there saying, here's me, here's Eliezer, I'm the big servant, I'm in charge, I'm going to go find a wife for my master's son. No, he says, Lord, who do you decide? You're the one who ordains. And he asks the Lord to show him in this way. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love, if this works out the way I've described. Now, can we do this? Those of you who are single, can you go to a, an event and say, Lord, I'm standing by the punch bowl and the young woman that comes up and takes a drink and offers me a drink as well, let her be the one that you've ordained to be my wife. Can we do that? I wouldn't recommend that. That's not what the Lord wants us to do. This is a special moment in the history of redemption. And there is no Bible. These Saints in the Old Testament are still living by special revelation from God. This is a special circumstance in the history of redemption. So don't make the mistake of falling into what some Christians do nowadays to start 
telling God to give you signs, because that's not what God calls us to do. God calls us in the new dispensation in Christ with the the word of God in our hands. He calls us to live by the word, by the light of the word. But here in Genesis chapter 24, when he doesn't have a Bible, he's going by the guidance of the angel of the Lord. The son of God is leading him. The spirit of God is guiding him. And in that context, it's reasonable for him to ask for this special sign. Now we know that when God shows his steadfast love, we know God shows his steadfast love and his covenant faithfulness when we live according to the covenant. And we see that in the Bible. We have the New Testament, the Old Testament. Testament means covenant. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant. We live by this covenant and we build our lives on the covenant promises of God recorded in Scripture. We don't go today by all kinds of signs and wonders, not when we've got the very word of God in our hands. And so, before he had finished speaking, verse 15, God has already answered his prayer before he even began to speak. What does the Bible say? For your father knows of the things which you need before you ask him. What does the psalmist say? Before a word is on my lips, you know it altogether. Once again, we see the sovereignty of God. And here comes Rebecca, and she's the daughter of Abram's nephew. She's the daughter of Isaac's cousin. And she's a hard-working, faithful girl. She does what all the women, even the noble or the higher class women, which she was, would do. They would participate. Their contribution to the household was to take the water jars at a certain time of the day and go get water for the household. She's beautiful, and you see in the chapter where that beauty comes from. She has an inner beauty, a kindness, a thoughtfulness, a selflessness, a a giving spirit, a hospitable spirit, and that shines through in her eyes and her face and the way she is. And she is unmarried. And so she is certainly suitable to be married to Isaac, the son of the promise. And when he asks her for a drink, she gives him the answer he was looking for. I will draw water for your camels also. Now, that was a pretty big offer. There were 10 camels. And that water jar would have weighed probably about 13 kilograms. The water alone, would have, it's about 13 liters in the jar, probably. So if you're carrying this thing on your shoulder, imagine carrying a pretty beefy one-year-old child, a pretty strong and well-fed one-year-old child on your shoulder. You, you let it down, you pick it up, you let it down, you pick it up. She's going up and down the steps to the spring. There's a lot of work. And she pours the jar she has into the trough for the camels. And she runs and gets more. So she probably has to do that at least 10 times. But here's the thing. One camel, if it hasn't drunk for a long time, can drink over 100 liters in about 15 minutes. So that would be a lot of jars. We don't know if she had to give them that much. We don't know when was the last time they were watered, but she certainly has to go probably at least 
10 times up and down. She's working hard here. This is a big offer that she makes. And she does it until they have finished drinking. And there sits Eliezer in verse 21. He's just looking. This is a different culture and a different time, right? We would say, well, come on, man. There's a, a young girl doing all this work. Be a man and offer to help her. It's a totally different time, a different culture, and we should be cautious to start judging it by the standards of our times. But he's looking in silence to learn whether God has prospered his journey. And they're finished drinking, verse 22. He takes gold, a gold ring and two bracelets. Now, if you take that weight of gold and you have to buy that amount of gold today, that's about $17,000 worth of gold. That's a lot of money. That's an expensive gift. And then he finds out that she's from the family he's looking for, from Tara's family. It's a wealthy family. It's a noble family. They've got a big house. They've got lots of room. They've got lots of provisions for the animals. And you see that she has the same spirit that Abraham had. You remember when Abraham saw those visitors, he ran to the flock and he ran here and he ran there and he welcomed them. He was very hospitable. She's got that same spirit. She's very quick to serve, very quick to be hospitable, and she knows that they will be welcome in her house. Now, of course, when she looks at Eliezer and the ten camels, camels were a sign of wealth in that time. Ten camels meant a lot of wealth. $17,000 worth of gold to put in your arms means a lot of wealth. And then, of course, they would be carrying themselves as servants of a mighty prince. You would be able to tell that these weren't just some ruffians or some brigands that were uh, outlaws and that were dangerous. You could tell that these were respectable people. And so they were invited to be in the home. Now, now look at Eliezer's response here. When he gets the answer he's looking for, when he gets the invitation he's looking for, look at the first thing he does. He, he doesn't say... Eliezer for the win. I, I, I'm so good. I did a great job. I found the person I'm looking for. I am so awesome. What does he do? Look at verse 26. The man bowed his head and worshipped. He says, I ask God for his steadfast love, and blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, who has not forsaken his steadfast love, his covenant love, his chesed love to my master. God keeps his promises. God has led things. God has ordained things so that his promises are fulfilled. And then you see Rebecca, verse 28, she runs and tells her mother's household about these things. Now, she's very excited. This is an unusual occurrence. It's exciting to get visitors from a far country. It's exciting to get $17,000 worth of precious jewelry put on yourself if you're a young girl especially. Now notice that she runs and tells her mother's household, Bethuel in this chapter is hardly mentioned. And it's likely that he's very old, perhaps sickly, tucked away and only comes out for the most important moment of decision. But for most of the story, it's Laban and his mother who are in the foreground. And then we meet Laban. And of course, we're going to meet Laban later on in Genesis. We already know him from later chapters in Genesis. We know what he's like. 
And we see as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets, off he goes running. We know him from later scripture to be greedy and scheming and always looking for his own advantage. And then verse 33, after they've taken care of the animals, there's something very unusual that happens here in verse 33. Now normally, in that culture, in that time, you would expect a visitor, even with urgent information, to first eat. And when he's eaten and everything's done and they clear away the dishes, then they'll sit back and have a great chat and talk about these urgent news. But he doesn't do that. It's unusual for that time. I have to say what I've got to say even before I eat. He's got to get to business. He has haste. He has urgency. And then what he does, and as we were reading the chapter, maybe it was even a little bit challenging to read because he goes and tells the whole story again, doesn't he? What is he doing here? Well, he's preaching the gospel. He's preaching God's faithfulness. He's preaching God's covenant. He's telling them about the work of the Lord in Abraham's life, God's promises to Abraham, God's fulfillment of the promises, God's blessings, God's sovereign leading and providence and guidance, how God has made clear his will, who he had ordained and appointed to be the wife of the son of the promise and mother in Israel. So he preaches the gospel. And he comes to his conclusion there in verse 48. God has led me to the right place. God has led me to the right girl. God has been faithful. And then in verse 49, now what about you, Laban and, 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 and family? Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to show steadfast love? Are you ready to align your life and your choices with the covenant love of God? Well, what are they supposed to say? I think perhaps Laban and Bethuel answer the same thing for different reasons, but they certainly answer the same thing. The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of Isaac as the Lord has spoken. Once again, God is directing everything here. Now, what is Eliezer's first reaction? We've seen him do this a bunch of times. He does it again. He's a believer. The first thing he does is he worships. He bows his head. He bows himself to the earth before the Lord. Prayer and worship come naturally to him. Once again, he doesn't pat himself on the back. He doesn't say, Eliezer, my, my man, you've done it. You've done it again. You are so awesome. He doesn't do that. He worships God. And then it's time to go. And the family in typical Eastern, uh, in a typical Eastern way, they attempt to delay and delay and delay, and he will have none of it. And then notice, notice what they do. They say, let's ask, let's ask the, the Rebecca. Let us call the young woman. And you see that even though there's an arranged marriage here where the, the father and the brother and the mother are involved, yet there is still respect and taking into account of the will of the young woman. Are you willing to go? So it's not forced upon her. And she makes a choice of faith. What Rebecca does here as a young girl 
is similar to what Abraham did when he left his land and his people and went to Canaan in the first place. She makes a choice in faith to go into the unknown. She makes a choice of courage, a choice to trust in God. She doesn't know where she's going, but she goes in faith. And she goes with the blessing of her family. They can't be at the wedding down there in Canaan, so they say their words now before she leaves. And here's the blessing. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Now, have we seen those words before? If you look back in chapter 22, verse 17, right after Isaac was about to be sacrificed, and then he saved at the last minute, that's what God says to him. You're going to become a great people, and your offspring will possess the gates of those who hate you. This is a promise, a covenant promise of the victory of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ over sin and over the world. They are prophesying here about you. You are part of those thousands of ten thousands, those hundreds of millions and even billions of believers over the ages who have come from our mother, Rebecca, who are part of God's people, of whom she is one of the mothers. And so they had no idea of the glory of how God would fulfill their prophetic blessing. The church, Catholic, uncountable, more than conquerors, having the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ, growing and growing till the church fills the entire earth. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fills the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's where things are heading. And that's the wedding blessing that they give her. And so off they go back, another two, three, four weeks of traveling, come to the last verses in our chapter 62 and following. Isaac's been moving around. He was down at Beer Laharoy. And you remember Beer Laharoy? That was the place where Hagar was shown the well of water when she was in the desert with her son and when she got promises about his future blessing. We don't know why Isaac was down there, but he's just returned from there and he's dwelling in the Negev, probably near Beersheba. It's been about three years since Sarah's death and we can tell from this chapter, especially the last verses, that He's still sad. He's still mourning three years later. He's 40 years old. There's no queen. There's no princess. There's no mother in Israel. And I think many of us know what that's like. If you've ever had it, that men and boys, if, if mom and the girls, they, they leave the home for a day, for two days, for a week to go on a journey, life gets pretty miserable in the house. It just, it's just not the same without mom without a woman and her wise, discerning administration of a home, it's, it's, it's difficult. And they're missing, they're missing a mother in Israel. There's no life in the home. He's working, he's busy, he's moving around, but he's not at peace. He's, he's in the shadow of Ishmael. Ishmael is a great hunter. Ishmael... The excommunicated one is becoming a great people as promised to Hagar there at Beer Laharoy, the well of the one who sees. 
So Ishmael's doing real good. He's got his wives and his family, and here's the son of the promise. He doesn't have anything. And so he's out there in the evening meditating. Now that word meditate there in verse 63, that's the only time we have it in the scripture. It's a word which hardly ever is used in Hebrew. And lots of books have been written about this word to try and figure out what it means. Meditate is kind of in the right direction. But words connected to this word in other parts of Scripture have to do with, with being introspective, being ill at ease, not just meditating in a good sense, but kind of complaining, pouring out your heart to God that things aren't well, I'm not feeling good. And so we get the impression here that Isaac's introspective, and he's just pouring out his heart to God, and things aren't really good for him. Where are the promises of God? Where is the line of the Messiah? Where are the blessings that are promised? And then he lifts up his eyes, and here comes blessing from God. It comes at God's time. It comes in God's way. And he brings her into the tent of Sarah, so he's with the main encampment there, because the tent of Sarah is right there. He takes her into the tent. He's married to her. She takes her place as the queen, the princess of the people of God, a mother in Israel. And now there is hope for the future. And that brings meaning and encouragement to Isaac, which he did not have before. It is not good for man to be alone. He can't fulfill his office and calling to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. The promise of a people and a land can't happen with just Isaac. But in God's providence, it, it needs the man and the woman together, knit together in love, working together in love and mutual commitment. That's how God fulfills his promise in the way of love. And you see that at the end of the chapter. She became his wife. And he loved her. It was an arranged marriage. But there's a sweet, special love between Isaac and Rebekah, which, which stands out even amongst the patriarchs. The other patriarchs had more than one wife. Isaac never did. There's a really, really beautiful, unique relationship between Isaac and Rebekah, even though the marriage was arranged. And so if you look over the the history of the world, and you look around the world, even today, there are different ways that marriages can come to be. And young people don't go look into Hollywood and the romantic movies to tell you how things are supposed to be, that you walk into a room, that you catch someone's eyes, and that's love at first sight, and, and the music swells, and you drive off into the sunset. There are different ways to be married. There are different ways to meet the person whom God has prepared for you. That's not the main thing. There's not just one way to do it. But the main thing is that you both love God. And when you both love God, then you can learn to love one another. And if you're having marriage problems right now, if you're having struggles in your marriage, then you need to focus and work on your love for God. That's where you've got to start. Because if your heart is knit together in God and your spouse's heart is knit together in God, then there is hope for your marriage. And you can learn, despite all the sins you've committed and your spouse has committed, you can learn to love each other 
in the power of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And so look back at chapter 23. It began with Sarah's death. Life is like grass. It is quick to fade and perish. And now at the end of chapter 24, finally Isaac is comforted by God for his mother's death. God is faithful to his covenant. Through the generations, he will provide the love and the life necessary to grow God's family, to build his church, to bring about his salvation in Christ. And so Abraham looked away from the grave, and he looked forward to the life to come. He believed that God will lead, that God will provide, that God will fulfill his promises, and God does. And there was Isaac. He felt dark, despondent, useless, incapable, and so he was. And so we all are, but God is faithful, and Christ directs our lives and ordains our path, and even though it takes dark turns, and though it goes through valleys of shadows and the shadows of death, in the end, even through the pains and the doubts and the seeming dead ends, the Lord sovereignly guides us toward a future of knowing more and more the fullness of life and love in Jesus Christ our Lord. So how does the gospel come to you this morning? Are you mourning a loss of a loved one or any loss of any type? Turn your eyes away from the grave. Look forward in faith like Father Abraham. Are you down? Are you despondent? Are you wondering how your life has any use and what prospects there are for you? Lift up your eyes like Isaac and see the blessings and provision that God is bringing towards you, even now. And are you wondering what road to take? Are you wondering what lies before you in the future? Are you uncertain about the unknowns that lie ahead? Throw yourself upon the covenant faithfulness, the steadfast chesed love of the Lord like Rebecca, and go forth in faith and trust God's covenant promises because he is faithful and his mercy and his righteousness will rest upon you as you make the deliberate decision to be ready to give up everything and everyone to follow him and to worship him. Look forward in faith. Amen.